Good morning, Harlem. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? All right, as soon as they get this uh, technology together. In the meantime, why don't we go to God with the word of prayer? Our gracious and awesome Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here today. Uh, We thank you for giving us a place where we can come together and commune and worship. And uh, we thank you for uh, what Jesus done for us on the cross so that we can be free and we can thrive and and have the life that you've called us to live. Uh, God, we know sometimes sin can domesticate us, can make us uh, feel like our cages are, are normal. We are afraid to venture out of our cages. But God, we are so grateful that you sent Jesus to call us out of our comfort zone of sin and into the wonderful life of forgiveness and repentance. And we pray that we can truly thrive. And God, I pray that uh, my message today, God, as we talk about reconciling relationships, I pray that you will take us to new heights in our relationships, take us to new depths in our relationships. And God, we pray ultimately that you will be glorified and that your church will be more radiant than ever as we truly uh, recommit to our relationship to one another. We love you. We thank you. Let my words be yours. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Are we still off? You guys can hear me? One, two, one, two. Oh, there we go. Maybe it's too low. You guys can hear me now? Good. Sounds like a Verizon commercial. All right. Amen. Can you hear me? All right. So just... uh, For those of you who are visiting us for the first time, we started a series on covenant relationships where we're helping the church to get back to really committing ourselves to one another, to helping each other grow spiritually, uh, mature in the Lord spiritually. And uh, we call it covenant relationships because we're imitating the relationship, one of the greatest relationships we see in the Bible, and that is of Jonathan and David. And Jonathan and David were two men who made a covenant, a commitment to their relationship with one another. So a covenant is simply a legal contract, an agreement, an alliance between two people or two parties. It's a commitment. It's a guarantee. I'm going to be here for you. Rain or shine, thick or thin, I'm here. Uh, It's a bond that we make. And I think one of the best examples that we have of this is a marriage. We go to a wedding. We see two people stand before a minister and they make a commitment and they seal that deal by saying, I do, followed with a kiss. Now, we're not encouraging you to do that, but we do encourage you to get with someone and say, I do. I commit to this relationship with you. I commit to our friendship. I commit to helping you grow in the Lord and I need you to do the same with me. Is that good? Does that sound like a plan right there? We need to do this because sometimes if we just leave it to chance, it won't happen. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, we have the initiators and we have the loners, right? And we know what happens when one person is trying to help multiple people, he eventually gets what? Burned out, right? And if he starts fending for himself, And before you realize it, everybody's fending for themselves and no one's helping each other grow in the Lord. And that's not what we want. 
You know, it's funny, this word covenant is used multiple times in reference to David and Jonathan's relationship. David, in his nature, is more of a loner, whereas Jonathan is more the initiator. Jonathan, in 1 Samuel 18, he was the one who approached David. Hey, let's, you know, he loved David as he loved himself. He reached out to David. He initiated the covenant relationship with David. And that doesn't mean that David wasn't a spiritual guy. It just means that he was more of a loner and Jonathan was more the initiator. That happens in spiritual relationships. You'll have someone who do most of the calling, most of the texting, most of the reaching out. Somebody needs to do it, otherwise it wouldn't happen, right? We also talked about how selfishness is the number one obstacle that we must overcome in order to build these long-lasting and meaningful relationships. But both people, both parties must commit to the relationship in order for it to happen. You can't have one person that's more committed than the other. It just won't happen. And so we have to come together, we have to commit to one another. Amen? Jonathan and David, there are our model for this uh, covenant relationship series. And uh, we also talked about accountability. Accountability, believe it or not, is not evil. Just look at the news. I bet you right now there are some politicians, there are some celebrities who wish they had more accountability. There are some people right now, we expect people to be held accountable But how about being more proactive about it? We don't want to wait until people get into trouble to acknowledge that they needed accountability. Let's be proactive. Let's not wait until we're tempted or or we're tripped up by some great sin to say, hey, I need help. Let's be proactive about it. Amen? So accountability is not evil. And that's a good thing. But today's lesson is very important to the big picture of these relationships. Today we're going to talk about reconciling relationships because you can't move forward in any relationship if there's no reconciliation. If there's hurt feelings in a relationship, it's very hard for that relationship to move forward. There has to be reconciliation. There has to be repair. And those are both important if we're going to move forward and mature in any friendship. Now, one another friendships, you may realize, man, it's going good for about a week or two. And because we're all sinful nature, all sinful creatures by nature, it only takes about a good month or so, I'll give us a month, before we do something to hurt each other's feelings. Am I right? I mean, I've shared before, my, you know, my covenant relationship with my wife, it didn't even go past the honeymoon before I started blowing it up. And I'm like, man, I love her and I don't intend to hurt her, but that's just the sinful man that I am. And we hurt each other. But you know what? I'm not going anywhere. And she better not think about going anywhere. I'm in this for life. I'm committed. Sign my name on the dotted line in blood. I mean, we, we got two kids in the, in, in the contract but we're going to hurt each other. And I know if you're visiting for today, you probably won't think, see, that's that's not the church I want to be a part of. Good luck finding a church where you're not going to get hurt. Your family hurts you. 
Your kids will hurt you. Your parents are going to hurt you. Your siblings will hurt you. Your boss will hurt you. Man, depending on who's driving the bus in the morning when you're going to work, if he's in a bad mood, he might hurt you. Keep it moving. I mean, so you're going to get hurt. It's, it's impossible to be in any relationship and not expect to get hurt. It's impossible. And so I believe that this has been the missing ingredient for why some of us may feel stuck in our relationship spiritually. We've been hurt. We haven't reconciled these relationships. And we're afraid to move forward or reinvest in any relationship. And it's not going to work. It's not going to work. You know, we have a great God who's able to help us get past anything. God would not call us to do something that was impossible. That's his job. We can absolutely coincide and be in relationships, thriving relationships, deep relationships with one another. But as with any relationship we know, there is going to be conflict. There's going to be conflict. You know, we start off right here, and conflict is always a part of relationships, family, friendships. A brother was sharing with me this morning about conflict he's having with someone in his family. It happens. It's going to happen. It can't be avoided. And you know what? It shouldn't be avoided. Because let me ask you this question. How do you know someone really loves you? By how many times they tell you? Does it, don't we need proof? Don't we need, don't we need to, you know, we, we need to, to, we had a men's midweek last week, and I asked some of the brothers, like, what do you, what do you look forward in, 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 like, what do you look to imitate? Like, what is it that impresses you about uh, uh, a man? And, 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 and you know, what, do, what are some guys that you'd like to follow? In? And believe it or not, a lot of brothers got open about wanting people who listen, who acknowledge that their closest relationships are ones where they have gone through some sort of conflict, resolved that conflict, and they were still there. And so the way we really know if our relationship is real is we go through something, and if we're able to bounce back from it, then that makes our relationship stronger. Because if all my sin can keep Zalika Warren married to me, then I know that woman's got to love me. I know a big part of it is because she loves God, but she also the man, if I got to live with this man for the rest of my life, then I just got to love him. And I got to let my love overcome multitudes of his sin. And vice versa. <laughs> it takes two to reconcile a relationship. It takes two. Otherwise, there's no reconciliation. Let's, let's read the Bible a little bit here. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 19. Now, we're going to look at David and Jonathan here. You know, it's, they're our model for the covenant relationships, and, and uh, they, they really set a precedence on, even, I think, even with men, how close men can get in a relationship and how uh, emotionally connected we can be with each other and how deep our friendship can really go 
And so I really appreciate God having this example in the scriptures for us to follow, but I believe that it can really serve as a model for all relationships and not just relationships between men. But uh, let's read here in 1 Samuel 19, and we'll read from verses 1 through 10. It says, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and tell him and tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He was not, he has not wronged you and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all of Israel and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul and David was with Saul as before. Their relationship, you know, remember when David slew Goliath? Saul brought him into his court and had David close to him. And so here we see, you know, we see a little fallout between Saul and and David. And Jonathan is coming in here now to intervene. And so now things are hopefully smoothing over and getting back to normal. Verse 8, it says, once more war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with the spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Now let's look at what's happening here. Let's look at the facts, okay? the facts of this conflict between Saul and David. Because oftentimes, what do we do when there's conflict? We often turn and talk about the facts, right? Somebody said run. We often, hopefully you don't run away from your wife. But but when there's conflict, what do we often do? We often get into a discussion about what? The facts, right? What you said and what you did and this. And so let's, let's talk about some of the facts here. Saul was trying to kill David. And then Jonathan found out about it. That's a fact, right? Jonathan spoke with Saul on behalf of his friend. That's a fact. And then eventually Saul did listen to Jonathan for a little while and actually made an oath that he would not kill David. Okay, so the the talk did go well, so we see. And then Jonathan called David and informed him about Saul's oath. Everything is good. Come on back. I talked to my dad. You're good, right? But then David comes back to the house because of his friend Jonathan. And then Saul tried to kill David. And eventually David said, I'm out of here. I got to run for my life. This guy is crazy. These are the facts. Which we know in most conflict resolution mean what? Nothing. Especially in marriage. 
try resolving a conflict with your wife with just the facts. Let me know how that goes. If it works, pass on what you did to me. Now, in marriage, it's not about winning, who wins or who loses. It's about getting right. And that's with any relationship between a sister and a sister, a brother and a brother, brother and a sister. It doesn't matter. Whenever there's conflict, especially for men, we tend to go to the facts. We tend to go to the facts. Now, are the facts important? Yeah, because something did happen. So we can't ignore all the facts because something we wouldn't be hurt or there wouldn't, we would, there wouldn't be conflict unless something happened. So the facts are important, but the problem with the facts are they're subjective. The facts are often subjective. They're based or, or, or they're, on, they're influenced by our personal feelings, our perception, and our opinions, or determine, depend on what attitude you're in, your attitude can color the facts. Especially if that person has hurt you before. So if you already have a perception about that person, that can color some of those facts. When we're in a disagreement, and I'll tell it myself here, oftentimes my default is to go to the facts. I didn't say that. I didn't say it like that. No, no, see, now, now I didn't see, now you say, you, you making it sound like I, you know, when a woman tries to imitate a man's voice, they got to they gotta beef it up a little bit because they're trying to sound like you. So when she's like, well, you say it like, you know, and I'm like, I didn't say it like that. It didn't even sound like me. But she's trying to communicate in her best effort how, he, how it sounded to her. So she's got to put some bass in her voice, right? And right away, what did our pride say, brother? I didn't say that. Why are you making me sound like that? And my tendency is to simply state the facts. This is what I said. This is how I said it. I didn't say it that way. I didn't say that. And imagine how the person is feeling when you're, re re you're replying with all the facts. Facts are subjective. The facts, according to us, look something like this. Your contribution to the problem is right there. The other person is like most of the pie. Now, you did, you know, you may have done a little something, but I didn't take up the whole pie. Right? <laughs> we think that our version of the facts is the truth. We think it's exactly what happened, because in our mind, it sounded exactly the way you said it, and it, it happened exactly the way you did it, just as I remember it. And we think that our version of the facts are accurate, and that the other person's version is inaccurate, or it's more damaging than ours. And so... 
In terms of conflict and conflict resolution, the problem with facts is that we typically are incapable of gauging our own contribution to the conflict. If you don't believe me, the next time two people come to you or your friend comes to you with the conflict, hey, I need some help dealing with this situation. Tell me what happened. Well, when I came home, he said, where's my dinner? He didn't say hi to me. He didn't give me a hug. He didn't ask me about my day. He's just like, where's, what's for dinner? Where's the food? I'm hungry. What you do all day? Now, if that's what you're hearing, you're going to think, that dude is terrible. I told you not to marry him, but you don't want to listen. You don't listen to advice. The Bible says many advisors, victory is sure. You didn't listen to me. You want to do it anyway. So now you made your bed, you go, you lay in it. Right? Upon first, until somebody says, well, now let me get your husband's side of the story. And then he comes in and he's like, you know, I came in and, and you know, I asked her, I said, hey, how, how's it going? And she was kind of, you know, she was busy getting everything together. And I said, hey, do you know, you got, you got, did you make dinner? You want me to grab something for dinner? Would you like me to cook? But she was kind of going in and out of the room. And so two different sides to the story. Depending on whose version you want to believe, and that's why we got to be very careful about listening to the first person. There's always two sides to a story. If right now we, saw, we went out these doors and we saw a car accident, everybody, there'd be 300 different viewpoints and different descriptions. It was a black car. It was a navy blue car. It was a dark green car. It was a purple car. We all have different, and we see the same accident. And so we got to be very careful about this. But, you know, usually when it comes down to us, we're, we're incapable of, of gauging our own con contribution to the breakdown. We talk about this is what they said, and then, and then you know, yeah, you know, my, 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 I contributed a little bit to it, but, I, you know, she just blew off the handle. And we never really tell on ourselves. We don't really tell on ourselves to really make, yeah, may, maybe I, you know, I was a little upset because I was annoyed and, you know, the bus was running late and I get home. But, you know, but man, she didn't have to say it like that. And, you know, we, so compared to the felony committed against us, we only did a little misdemeanor. And they committed multiple felonies against me. Facts according to them, right? I mean, that's, that's usually what it looks like. There's two different versions. And the reality is probably something like this. It's probably closer to this. Because even if we're offended, we're responsible for how we respond to the offense. And, and the Bible says that a harsh uh, a harsh answer, a gentle answer turns away wrath, right? And so if you, but a harsh, a harsh tongue, I mean, you can stir up more trouble by your response. So if your wife does say, give me a minute, I'm kind of busy. Well, what you do all day? You just added a bucket of gasoline on that fire, brother. Or if she says, can you help with the kids? I'm tired. I mean, 
There's ways to respond where you can resolve the conflict before it even happens. And so there's usually something like this. Now, how do we deal with this? The Bible tells us to deal with it quickly. Jesus says settle matters quickly. Don't let it linger. Ephesians 4, Paul tells us don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Now, here's the thing. If you get into a conflict at midnight with your spouse or with your roommate or or someone, the sun's already down. Right? So the principle behind that scripture is just deal with it quickly. Deal with it when you can. All right? If I'm tired, I can tell my I tell my wife, right, babe, I want this to go well. Can we talk about it in the morning? Because if you're tired, you're irritable, you want to go to sleep. And I'm, I'm probably speaking for the brothers here. What are you going to say? Amen. Mm-hmm, I'm sorry. Because you just want to go to sleep. You don't believe. You don't agree with half of what she's saying. And then you go to sleep angry. There's nothing worse in the world than angry sleep. You have angry dreams. You're tossing and turning angry, punching your pillow. Tearing up the sheets. Gritting your teeth. Ain't nothing worse than angry sleep. <laughs> Baby, I want this to go well. Can we talk about this in the morning? And if you've got a spiritual wife, if you've got a wife that loves you, she'll say yes. Sisters, help your husbands out. You want it to go well, just say a little prayer. Amen. Let's talk about it. But give me a time when we can talk about it. Brothers, don't say let's talk about it later. Help her out. Give her a time when you can talk. Because later to a woman is like eternity (laughs) in man years. All right? In women years, later equals eternity. You got to tell her when. Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to wake up in the morning. Can we talk about it now? You just putting your shirt on. You got to get out of here. I can't talk about it now. Can we talk about this later? You wanna, can we talk about it now? You on the bus? Baby, we want to talk on the train in front of all these people? You've got to tell her when. Because in her mind, I need to get this resolved quickly. Women are more emotionally in touch. We don't want to deal with it. So we like later. Until I can kind of go in my cave and figure out exactly what I'm feeling. So sisters, you've got to give your man a little bit of time to go in his cave, ponder his emotions, his feelings, put some words to those feelings, So he can come with his thesis prepared to help resolve this conflict. We need some time. I'm not as in touch. My wife can spit out how she's feeling in a in a New York minute. I need a moment. I'm feeling all kinds of things. I gotta put some words to those feelings so I can articulate what I'm feeling. Otherwise, I'm gonna be like, I'm good. It's all right. And I don't want that. You don't want that. Because you want to know the deepest, darkest emotions that's going on in the bowels of my heart. So you want me to tell you the truth. Give me a minute. And I'll tell you. But here's the thing. That's just not husband and wife. Brothers and sisters in the church. Sisters and sisters, brothers and brothers. We got to give each other enough time, to, to, but we got to do it quickly. We got to do it quickly. 
If issues are not resolved quickly, they grow. They grow. And here's the thing. Satan, being the opportunist that he is, looks for those opportunities. But when the conflict happens, and if he sees that you're delaying in resolving that conflict, he'll fill up those missing pieces. He'll fill up those missing pieces. You see, the Bible teaches that we should settle matters, matters quickly before the sun goes down. Say you're sorry. Apologize. You know, we teach our children to resolve conflicts quickly, don't we? My son had an incident with one of his friends at school, and said, all right, you need to go, you need to write a letter, apologize to your friend. And why do they do it? Because we, we realize how important those relationships are. And when kids go and they say, I'm sorry, and, you know, to them, it's like they don't need the explanation. They just need to hear, I'm sorry. They're not, their brains are not that developed yet to understand all the reasonings and all the intricacies of relationships. And so what they do is just, a sorry is enough. But the point is, we deal with it quickly. And so we teach them at, at, at young ages, deal with it quickly. The same goes for us as adults. If we imitate children and get it, at least get the conversation going, we're not saying that the feelings are going to go away automatically, but at least the conversation is going, and we deal with it quickly. Here's what happens. Things get filled up, and they escalate when it does not happen right away, right? Miscommunication. You know, these missing pieces, miscommunication, maybe it's, you text somebody, you know, and they misread them. I hate communicating emotions through text messages. You can't do that. We don't use the proper syntax or whatever it is. The grammar is off. And you don't really text like you would talk to somebody. We, we, go, we cut a lot of corners. We throw emojis in there and, and all that stuff. And it's like, whoa, wait a second. How can you type me in all bold letters? Why are you yelling at me? And, you know, so... Texting can, can create some miscommunication, but miscommunication can feed that, that separation, right? False assumptions, not giving the benefit of the doubt. That can complicate. It can complicate things and keep us from getting resolved. The desire to be right. You know what? You won the last fight. It's my turn. I'm right. The facts are in my favor. You're wrong. I win. That desire to be right will just prolong the conflict. Personal bias. We have our own filters. People who hurt us in a certain way or certain people who hurt us goes through a filter. They don't know me. Or they're always like this. And we have our filters with certain people. And if you have a personal filter, it doesn't matter who comes through it, they're always going to hurt you. And that can prolong the conflict resolution. Misinformation. Somebody else came to you to tell you about somebody else's conflict with you. Wait a second. How come they didn't tell me? Well, they felt a little intimidated, they felt afraid, they felt scared, they felt this, they felt that, they have a hard time with conflict. They, 
Wait a second, though. We're following the Bible. Bible says, Matthew 18, go to your brother. Go, go to your sister. Between the two of you. Now, there is a time when a third party is needed in that same passage. If things don't work out just between the two of you, then you bring somebody else in who can listen, who can be unbiased. But sometimes when you got somebody else coming and telling you about somebody else's hurt, or, that just doesn't go well. It doesn't set up the resolution well, right? Not feeling heard or validated. This was a big one for me. There was a, there was a time in our church where, and I'm guilty of it myself, well, we would say, husbands, listen to your wife. She's always right. And when you hear it the first time, you kind of chuckle, ha-ha, yeah, that's good. She ain't always right. But if you hear it often enough, you hear it from the pulpit, you hear it in discipling times, you start to think, maybe she is right. And maybe I am wrong. And then you start to figure out that everything that she brings up is your fault. Even the things you bring up. Wait a second, she was just rude to me, but what did I do to cause her to be rude to me? Man, that was really disrespectful what she did, but I had to do something to make her disrespect me. We totally take out the fact that our wives are also sinful creatures. Jesus didn't just die for husbands. He didn't just die for men. He died for men and women. But when you don't feel validated, you know what that does. Resentment and bitterness starts to fester. And then you don't even want to bring it up. Because now it's like, why should I bring it up when it's always my fault? If you're always right, why even talk about it? But no, I want to know. Why? So you can rub it in my face? No, I'll keep it to myself. Me and Jesus to deal with it. But what happens to the relationship? There's no closeness. There's no closeness when you don't feel validated. Like, you know what? You hurt my feelings. Say you're sorry. I'm sorry. Do you forgive me? We're good. And we can deal with the facts later. It doesn't even, I just need to, I just need you to acknowledge that you sinned against me. All the facts are unimportant at this point. Now here's the thing. We all Everybody has some emotional baggage that we bring into relationships. Every single one of us. You're like, no, I don't. Yes, you do. <laughs> Everybody brings some. They may not be all of these, but we all bring some type of emotional baggage into relationships. And these emotional baggage, we have to be aware of because they can keep us from resolving conflicts. Family issues. Do you have past family issues? Maybe you grew up in a household where you couldn't speak up. You were not allowed to speak up. I know my generation, we can relate to that. We grew up in a generation with a household where kids were to be seen and not heard. And you did what I say. Why? Because I said so. End the story, end the conversation. That's how I grew up. I brought that emotional baggage into my marriage, into my other relationships, right? Mistrust and abuse. Some of us were victims of abuse. 
We bring that emotional baggage into our relationships. It's hard for us to trust people because we're afraid to be vulnerable again because of the abuse in our past. Abandonment. Maybe you felt alone by people you trusted, people you loved, people you looked up to. Maybe you felt like no one was there for you in the most important times of your life. You bring that into a relationship, a sense of entitlement. Maybe you grew up actually believing that the world evolved around you. Sometimes kids, you know, my parents said, I can do anything. Even rule over you. I can do anything. Everything. I, you, if you don't say no to your kids, they will grow up thinking that they, belong, they, they should have everything. And I know, as a parent, we want our kids to grow up better than we have. I understand that. We want them to have better things. We want them to have a better education. We want them to live in a better neighborhood. But you got to get into the habit of saying no to your children. They don't need everything they want and shouldn't have everything they want. I know I'm not helping you out, teens, but hey. you got to learn how to work for some things. Earn it so you feel appreciated. You appreciate it more when you work for you. You earn it. If everything is always given to you, you develop a sense of entitlement. And if you bring that into a relationship, that's a turnoff for some people. Unrelenting standard. I think sometimes we come in a relationship with these standards and it's like, well, he didn't meet these relationships. You got a, a, a list before you started going steady with someone? Throw that list in the garbage. I'm going to tell you right now. I want this, I, she got to have this, 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 and that. He's got to have this, 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 this. The only thing should be on your list is they love God, they got a job, they read their Bible, they come to church, they pray, they're walking with God. Otherwise than that, I'm telling you right now, nobody is going to meet all those standards on your list. And in relationship where people don't meet up our expectations, we get disappointed and then we start looking for a way out of that relationship. Approval-seeking. People-pleasing. You do everything to make people happy, even at the expense of your own feeling and happiness. Or fear of rejection. We'll do anything so people will accept us. Because we don't want anyone to reject us. And, you know, we bring all this into our relationships, so when we're trying to resolve a conflict, we, ca we have to know ourselves to know, man, I got some stuff, too, and I need to kind of even this thing out. It can't be all about that person and what they've done to me. What have I contributed to this conflict? And how can I get this resolved? And so what's more important than the facts are the feelings that were hurt and are unresolved. The facts are not as important as the feelings that were hurt and are unresolved. In 1 Samuel, let's read this. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Let's go through this quickly. So here, this is after, we saw in chapter 19 that Saul and David had this falling out, right? After Jonathan convinced David to come back to the castle, Saul betrayed his trust. And so now we see David and Jonathan's relationship took a, little, uh, took a slight turn as a result of what happened between David and Saul. 
Then verse 1, it says, Then David fled from Naoth to Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to take my life? Never, Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet, as surely as the Lord lives as you live, there is only a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon festival and I'm supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant. For you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I'm guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, well, who will tell me if your father answers harshly? Now, what do we see happening here? This is a pretty emotional exchange between Jonathan and David, isn't it? David is like, what's up with your dad? What have I done to him? I killed Goliath when no one else would step up. I led the army of Israel into many victorious battles, all to glorify him and God. What have I done to your father that he hates me so and wants to kill me? And you notice how he's not talking to Jonathan as a friend anymore. Now it became very formal. Your servant. Very similar to when someone's hurt in the church. And it goes from being my church to your church did this. Or the church. We... we, we, we distance ourselves when our feelings are hurt. And hurt feelings create distance between people and between a group. Now, all relationships go through periods of testing. That's just what strengthens us. That's what, it comes natural relationships. And even though you've been close in the past, there are times when you need to overcome hurdles. You need to overcome hurts. You need to overcome offenses that will benefit each other in growing deeper in those relationships. They're necessary for helping our relationships grow stronger. Now, the emotions of this conflict, when you look at it, we break it down here. Jonathan was very defensive of his father. He was defensive. He said, wait a second. My father would tell me if he was going to do something, right? His judgment was tainted because of his personal bias. This is my dad you're talking about. 
If he was going to do anything to harm you, he would talk to me first, and I would, uh, don't you think I would know about it? How do you think that would make David feel? He's going about the facts. He's, he's focused on the facts. And David's listening to this thinking, man, you were the one who initiated this covenant relationship with me. I'm trying to tell you, this man is trying to kill me. And you're defending him. And this is the second time he's done it. You see, the trust start to break down between David and Jonathan. He said, who's going to tell me? Because at this point, David's like, okay, I see your bias to this relationship, and understandably so, that's your father. So who's going to tell me if indeed your dad is trying to kill me? Because at this point, he doesn't trust David. He doesn't trust Jonathan, Jonathan anymore. Chapter 19, David told him it was going to happen. He was right. David could have pulled the right card. See, I told you. David was right. Now it's the same issue again. And in verse 8, we see the relationship goes from being informal to formal. Your servants. Now there's the distance between David and Jonathan. All relationships go through this time of testing. You notice how many exclamation marks were used in Jonathan's... It was a pretty heated discussion. And I can imagine it was probably difficult for Jonathan because David was accusing his dad of trying to kill him. But Jonathan's judgment was tainted due to his personal bias. He got, J- he got David to trust Saul the first time, and David's like, not again. And you see, when our relationships go through these, tr- these times of testing, the end result reveals how deep our relationships really are. It's one thing to say, I love you. It's another thing to show it. And time is the ultimate test for all relationships. So who is really to blame between this conflict between Jonathan and David? Who was really to blame? It was Saul. It was Saul. He came in between these two men who were in a covenant relationship together, and sometimes that is the case. Sometimes it's someone on the outside that comes in and ruins a good thing, messes up a good relationship, right? But as we also see, who's at work beneath all that? It's the devil himself. Now, I don't know if that's how he looks, but at the end of the day, the Bible says that it's Satan who's really behind everything else, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there's anything to, if there's anything to forgive, I have forgiven, forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. You know, I think sometimes we do operate, though, as if we are unaware that it's Satan. 
the way we respond and we react, we forget that, man, Satan is the one behind the scenes on this thing. He's the one orchestrating all this. And I know sometimes it sounds like the devil made me do it as a cop-out, but he does entice us. He does lead us. He is the accuser. So if in your heart and your mind you're accusing your friend of not giving you the benefit of the doubt, guess whose voice is behind that? Because the voice of God is saying love, but then the other one is saying an accuse. God will never accuse. And so if we're hearing these accusations about our friends, about our spouse, about our parents, about our kids, guess who's behind the scenes? And look, we got to take this even further behind the church. Satan masquerades around like an angel of light, the Bible says. You don't think Satan comes to church? We don't have some spiritual force field that keeps the devil out. You never struggle with a temptation while in a sermon, while during communion, while in fellowship? Who do you think is behind all that? Some of us have had our falling outs while we ain't church. Some of us have hurt each other's feelings in the talk in fellowship. And so Satan is behind keeping us from resolving our conflicts. Ephesians 4, 25 says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, pseudos, false, and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body, and your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give what? The devil a foothold. Once Satan has his foot in the door, he works his leg in there, and he just pries it right on open. We can't give, we, the Bible says don't even give him a foothold. Don't give him a foothold. And how do we do that? We resolve things quickly. We resolve things quickly. Satan is always scheming. Always worming his way into figuring out how can I get a foothold into that relationship. How can I split these two up? How can I get in there and make a, and ruin this? That's what Satan does. That's what he does. He likes to set up shop in the church. He likes to set up shop in the church. And, and he, what he does is he, Satan is not always blatant. He likes to worm his way in. And what does he do? He creates falsehood in relationships. In Hebrews 12, verse 14 and 15, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and, to, and defile many. You know, Ephesians 4 talks about put off falsehood. Basically, don't be fake with each other. Don't be fake with each other. Now, here's the thing. It's not always easy to identify. Why? Because it's a root. And roots aren't at the surface. Roots are beneath everything. And so the only way we can really get to the root is we got to get deeper in our relationships. We got to ask more penetrating questions. That's going to that's going to get past I'm okay. I'm good. No you're not. Let's talk about what's really going on in your life. And if we're to see to it that no bitter root grows, you can't treat that on the surface. It takes us being vulnerable, being humble, and being open. I believe that God 
has spared my life and my marriage from serious derailment because I allowed myself and my wife, we allowed ourselves to get deep with other couples, to get beneath the surface and really talk about the things that bother and hurt us. If we just sit down and and laugh and joke and talk about how the kids are doing, but we don't really get real about what's going on in our lives, everything stays at the surface. And there's a bitter root growing. And the stronger the root, the more visible the fruit. We got to get deep. But that's not going to happen unless we commit to it. Unless we agree Bro, I want you to get deeper in my life. Sis, I need you to be, I need us to get deep. There'll be time to go to the movies. There'll be time to go for walks in the park. There'll be time to go fishing. There'll be time to go shopping. Right now, we need to talk. And we need to get deep. Amen? Make every effort. We can't be lackadaisical about this. We can't be haphazard. We've got to be deliberate about this. You know, there are two sets of make, it, make every effort scriptures in the Bible. Some talks about making it to heaven. Make every effort to make it to heaven. Make every effort to, make, to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Luke 13, 24. Uh, Hebrews 4, verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, talking about heaven, so that no one will fall by the following Uh, by following their example of disobedience. The Bible tells us to make every effort to get to heaven, right? The second set of make every effort scriptures are about conflict resolution. Live at peace with one another. Romans 14, verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. Romans 12, verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Make every effort. My challenge to you this week is to make every effort to reconcile whatever relationship in your life needs to be reconciled. Make every effort. Start today. Don't wait. If the person is in the room, tap them on the shoulder. Can we talk today? Brothers, give them a specific time. Don't say, can we talk later? No. Can we talk today? Can we talk tomorrow? Can we talk after the walking dead? Can we talk before the walking dead? Whatever. Can we talk after the Oscars? I don't want to talk during the Oscars, but can we talk? But you got to be specific. Let's get this done. And here's the thing. When my wife and I were helping our son with his, his, his conflict with his friend, what really made us urgent was how hurt my son felt about being disconnected with his friend. When you really love someone, that's the motivation. That's all the motivation you need to resolve whatever conflict lies between you. If we really love each other like we say we do, we won't let the sun go down again until we get resolved. 
We'll make every effort as much as it depends on us. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't, if, if, if they don't respond the way you want, that's not on you. You're making the effort. You're making the effort. And that's what God expects. Amen? Living at peace with one another, how important is it? How important is it? Is it a salvation issue? Is it a salvation issue? You're going to have to join us next week for part two as we answer that question to God be the glory.